1949, the devil came to St. Louis, if you believe the stories. And why wouldn't you? It was in the Washington Post, one of the nation's most respected newspapers. An August 20th, 1949 edition read, in what is perhaps one of the most remarkable experiences of its kind in recent religious history, a 14-year-old Mount Rainier boy has been freed by a Catholic priest of possession by the devil. It was reported yesterday. Only after 20 to 30 performances of the ancient ritual of exorcism here and in St. Louis was the devil finally cast out of the boy, it was said. In all of the, except for the last of these, the boy broke into a violent tantrum of screaming, cursing, and voicing of Latin phrases, a language he'd never studied. Whenever the priest reached those climactic points of the 27-page ritual in which he commanded the demon to depart from the boy. In complete devotion to his task, the priest stayed with the boy for over a period of two months, during which he witnessed such manifestations as the bed in which the boy was sleeping suddenly moving across the room. A Washington Protestant minister has previously reported personally witnessing similar manifestations, including one in which the pallet on which the sleeping boy lay slid slowly across the floor until the boy's head bumped against a bed, awakening him. In another instance reported by the Protestant minister, a heavy armchair in which the boy was sitting with his knees drawn under his chin, tilted slowly to one side and fell over, throwing the boy to the floor. The final rite of exorcism in which the devil was cast from the boy took place in May, it was reported, and since then he has had no manifestations. The ritual in its present form goes back 1,500 years and from there to Jesus Christ. But before it was undertaken, all medical and psychiatric means of curing the boy, in whose presence such manifestations as fruit jumping up from the refrigerator top in his home and hurling itself against the wall, also were reported, were exhausted. The boy was taken to Georgetown University Hospital here where his affliction was exhaustively studied and to St. Louis University. Both are Jesuit institutions. Finally, both Catholic hospitals reported they were unable to cure the boy through natural means. Only then was a supernatural cure sought. The ritual was undertaken by a Jesuit in his 50s. The details of the exorcism of the boy were described to the Washington Post by a priest here, not the exorcist. The ritual began in St. Louis, continued here, and finally ended in St. Louis. For two months, the Jesuit stayed with the boy, accompanying him back and forth on the train, sleeping in the same house, and sometimes in the same room with him. He witnessed many of the same manifestations reported by the Protestant minister this month to a closed meeting of the Society of Parapsychology Laboratory at Duke University, who came here to study the case. It was quoted as saying it was the most impressive poltergeist, noisy ghost, phenomenon that had come to his attention in his years of celebrated investigation in the field. Even through the ritual of exorcism, the boy was by no means cured readily. The ritual itself takes about three quarters of an hour to perform. During it, the boy would break into the fury of profanity and screaming in the astounding Latin phrases. But finally, at the last performance of the ritual, the boy was quiet. And since then, it was said, all manifestations of the affliction, such as the strange moving to the bed across the room and another in which the boy's family said a picture had suddenly jutted out from the wall in his presence, have ceased. It was early this year that members of the boy's family went to their minister and reported strange goings-on in their Mount Rainier house since January 18th. The minister visited the boy's home and witnessed some of the manifestations. 
But though they seem to the naked eye unexplainable, such as the scratchings from the area of the wall in the boy's presence, there was always the suggestion, he said, that in some way the noises may have been made by the boy himself. Retaining his skepticism in the matter, the minister then had the boy stay a night, February 17th, in his own home. It was there before his own eyes, he said, that the two manifestations that he felt were beyond all natural explanation took place. In one of these, the boy's pallet moved across the floor while his hands were outside the cover and his body rigid. In the other, the heavy chair with the boy immobile on it tilted and fell over to the floor before the minister's amazed eyes, he said. The minister tried to overturn the chair while sitting in it himself and was unable to do so. The case involved such reactions as neighbors of the boy's family sprinkling holy water around the family's house. Some of the Mount Rainier neighbors' skepticism was startlingly resolved. It was reported when they first laughed it off, invited the boy and his mother to spend the night in their own unhaunted homes, only to have some of the manifestations, such as the violent, apparently involuntary shakings of the boy's bed, happen before their eyes. It's a pretty amazing story, no matter what you personally believe. The only issue is that only parts of the article are true. Dates and places are confused, anecdotes are incomplete, and some are, well, completely made up. It's too bad the mistakes were made because by the end of this series within a series, you're going to see that the truth was much stranger and much more terrifying. The story of the St. Louis exorcism has been told for nearly four generations. It's inspired books, documentaries, and even one very famous film. It is, without question, the greatest unsolved mystery of the city of St. Louis, one of the most baffling puzzles of the supernatural in American history. But is the story so mysterious because of the events that occurred or because of the bizarre mixture of fact and fantasy that it's become? The story of the 1949 St. Louis exorcism has been a confusing and convoluted mess over the years. There are so many theories, legends, tales, and counter stories that have been thrown into the mix that it's become very hard to separate just what is truth and what is fiction in this case. I first began researching the story in the early 1990s and went on to write three different editions of a book on the case, and my intent has always been to separate truth from fiction. What part of the story that so many of us have come to know is nothing more than just the result of wild imagination and what part of it really took place? Can we really get to the bottom of what happened in 1949 despite all the unanswered questions that have been left behind? What really happened in Maryland that would drive a family halfway across the country to look for answers? And what happened at the old Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis that still has former staff members whispering about it in fear? And most of all, was this boy really possessed by a demon? I've never been able to promise that I would solve the mystery, although I do think that I've provided enough evidence for the listener to judge for himself or herself whether they wish to believe the story or not. I've always wanted you to decide what you believe. When I first started working on the story, I knew what I believed about it or thought I did. All that I can tell you is that my mind has been changed several times over the years based on the various interviews that I've conducted with the remaining principals in the case. All that I ask from you is to keep an open mind and then decide what you think happened in 1949 after you've heard all the evidence. It's a bizarre story. It's also a confusing one and in complete honesty, it's pretty damn scary. 
The exorcism may have happened almost 70 years ago, but the presence of the exorcism is still very much alive in St. Louis today. These are episodes of the podcast that will have you listening with the lights on. Supernatural or not, something happened to that young boy and his family in 1949. In the episodes ahead, we'll try and figure out just what that something was. Prepare yourself because these episodes are going to be like nothing that we have ever delved into before. Prepare to be disturbed by what you're going to hear. Prepare to be frightened. You may tell yourself this is only a podcast, but remember, this story is true. And what happened in St. Louis in 1949 can happen anywhere. You could tell yourself that you don't believe that people can be possessed by supernatural beings, but what you believe may not matter. Even those who do not believe sometimes come face to face with things they cannot understand. Who knows, the next person to encounter something like this might just be you. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. The story of the St. Louis exorcism began not in St. Louis, but in the town of Mount Rainier, Maryland. The family of the boy who would become known as Robbie Doe lived in a bungalow on Bunker Hill Road. It was a quiet neighborhood filled with working class families not far from Washington, D.C. Robbie was born in 1935 and grew up in this area. He was the only child of a dysfunctional family and had a troubled childhood. Now, I'm going to take a moment here and note that I do know the real name of Robbie Doe. I've known it since the early 1990s and learned it after checking property records for some of the locations that were listed in what became known as the Priest's Diary. When I interviewed Robbie at the time, his name was not commonly known and I agreed that I would not use it in any of my public writings. I've stuck with the agreement, even after a lot of tactless people have posted it on the internet over the years. For the podcast, I'm going to continue to refer to him as Robbie. In January 1949, when Robbie was 13, his family began to be disturbed by scratching sounds that came from inside of the walls and ceilings of their home. 
Believing that the house was infested with mice, his parents called an exterminator, but he could find no sign of rodents. To make matters worse, his efforts seemed to add to the problem. Noises that sounded like someone walking in the hallway were often heard, and dishes and objects were often found to be moved without explanation. And while the noises were disturbing, they weren't nearly as frightening as when Robbie began to be attacked. His bed shook so hard that he couldn't sleep at night. His blankets and sheets were torn from the bed. When he tried to hold onto him, he was reportedly pulled off the bed and onto the floor with the sheets still gripped in his hands. According to entries in the priest's diary, a written account of the exorcism that was accidentally made public many years later. After Robbie's mother learned that the house was not infested by mice, she began to believe that it was haunted by Robbie's Aunt Tilly, who had recently died. Robbie and his aunt, whose real name was Matilda, had been very close, and Tilly had a strong interest in spiritualism and the occult. But as things progressed, this began to seem more and more unlikely. By late January, the scratching sounds described in the diary began to fade. They continued on for a short time and then stopped, although Robbie would report many times that he still heard the noises. After a few days, another mysterious sound began, this time in Robbie's bedroom. He described it as sounding like squeaking shoes, and it was only heard at night after he'd gone to bed. The squeaking sounds went on for a couple of nights, and then the scratching started again. And this continued night after night. Not all the strange sounds and physical attacks occurred in Robbie's home, but most did. There were neighbors and classmates who saw the strange events occur for themselves, but opinions were divided about whether something paranormal was taking place or if Robbie was simply making the whole thing up. Years later, some would say they never believed Robbie was possessed. Some said he had psychological problems. Others were less charitable, describing him as a problem child who was smothered by a religious mother. He was an unpopular loner, some said, prone to tantrums. He was a dysfunctional boy, said others, looking for attention. And then there were the other stories. Eyewitness accounts from ministers, psychologists, and priests who had strange stories to tell. In January 1949, Robbie was in the eighth grade at Bladensburg Junior High School in Maryland. He was removed from class at that time thanks to several weird events that occurred. The desks at school were movable seats and desk units with a single arm that acted as a writing surface. On several occasions in January and February, Robbie's desk slid into the aisle and began jerking about the classroom, banging into other desks and causing an uproar. Although the teacher understandably assumed that Robbie was pushing the desk around with his feet, Robbie swore he had not caused it to move. He maintained that it slid across the floor by itself and there was nothing that he could do to stop it. Robbie always seemed to be nearby when anything strange occurred. A book flew out of the bookcase and landed at his feet. A coat flew off the hanger in the closet and draped itself over his shoulders. Items on a kitchen counter vaulted across the room in his direction, clattering onto the floor. The kitchen table lifted on one end and flipped over. Clothing that he placed on a chair in his bedroom was found scattered on the floor when no one else was in the room, and the weird happenings went on and on. One weekend, a number of relatives came to visit, and Robbie was sitting with them in the living room, relaxing in a large, overstuffed chair. Suddenly, the back legs of the chair rose into the air and flipped forward, dumping Robbie out of it. The boy went sprawling onto the floor, dazed and a little shaken. Family members who were surprised by what they'd seen gathered around the chairs, checking to see if there was something wrong with it. Robbie's father and a burly uncle both sat down in the chair and tried to flip it over. Neither of them could do it. 
As they were still examining the chair, one of Robbie's aunts pointed to a small end table near the couch. A vase that had been sitting on the table slowly lifted off of it and seemed to hang in the air for a few moments. Then with a flash, it shot across the room and smashed against the wall. One night, the quiet of the house was shattered by screams coming from Robbie's room. His parents and grandmother rushed into the bedroom as he lay screaming on the bed, and they watched a heavy dresser slide across the room, blocking their exit back through the door. The drawers of the dresser began to open and close, sliding and slamming back in again. This continued for nearly a minute and then stopped. On another occasion, Robbie's family went to visit some friends who lived about 40 miles away. The afternoon passed uneventfully until Robbie sat down in a rocking chair in the living room. The adults were chatting in the other room and they heard a sharp cry from the boy. They rushed into the room and later agreed they'd all seen the same thing. The rocking chair with Robbie sitting in it, spinning around and around in the middle of the room. His feet were well off the floor and the chair seemed to be spinning under its own power. It was impossible for it to be moving in the way that it was, but there was no denying they'd seen it with their own eyes. By this time, the family was becoming desperate. They began seeking help for Robbie, and according to one account from 1975, called in two Lutheran ministers and a rabbi. Now, this sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it, it actually wasn't. Robbie had been baptized a Lutheran at birth, so one has to wonder why a rabbi would be called to the house, although some have suggested that perhaps one of the ministers had asked him along. That's assuming this actually happened, which I have my doubts about. The account goes on to say that while the rabbi was examining the boy, Robbie suddenly began to shout in an unknown tongue. After listening for a few moments, the rabbi announced he was speaking in Hebrew. Not only that, but the report adds that a professor from a Catholic university in Washington would later hear the boy's speech and insist that Robbie was speaking Aramaic, an ancient language of Palestine. If this account is accurate, and again I doubt it, we'd have to ask, how would a 13-year-old boy from Maryland learn how to speak Aramaic? But the question remains as to whether either of these reports of Robbie speaking in a foreign language is really accurate. There's nothing in the priest's diary about this or even anything similar to it, and nothing in the 1975 account to suggest where this story came from. As far as I can tell, it's simply another wild story that's been added to the mythology over the years. And it wouldn't be the last one. Anyway. Robbie's parents also sought help from legitimate sources. Robbie was examined by a physician as well as a psychologist and a psychiatrist. No records are available as to what occurred during these visits except for remarks that came from the physician and the psychiatrist. The doctor said he'd found nothing wrong with Robbie, although he was, quote, somewhat high strung. The psychiatrist was more critical, stating that he found Robbie to be normal and that he, quote, did not believe in the phenomena. He also stated that Robbie was irritated with all of his questions and procedures. Unsure of what direction to turn to next, Robbie's parents contacted the pastor of the Lutheran church they attended, Reverend Luther Schultz. Although Robbie's father was a non-practicing Catholic, his mother had been born and raised a Lutheran and was deeply religious. Robbie had been baptized into the church when he was six months old. 
Reverend Schultz came over to the family's home and listened politely to the litany of strange events that were taking place in the house. He was skeptical at first until he allegedly had the opportunity to see the activity as it was actually occurring. He later stated that he saw furniture move about in the house, pushed by unseen hands. He saw dishes fly through the air, saw glasses break, and watched as Robbie's bed vibrated and shook. He first th thought that all of it could be dismissed as the work of a clever prankster, but soon changed his mind. He became determined to try and help the family however he could. Reverend Schultz was unsure how to deal with what was occurring, especially with the new things that Robbie's family soon began telling him. In addition to all the strange things occurring in their home, they were becoming unsettled by the changes in Robbie himself. He'd become very angry and depressed, keeping to himself and refusing to speak to anyone. One night in his sleep, they heard him cursing and using obscenities that they refused to repeat to the minister. His personality was completely different than it had been just weeks before they were beginning to wonder if Robbie might possibly be diabolically possessed. Well, Reverend Schultz had little knowledge of that kind of phenomenon. As a Lutheran minister, he knew that Martin Luther, who had split off from the Catholic Church and had founded the Lutheran faith, had considered all mental illnesses to be cases of diabolical possession. Of course, in the modern times of the 20th century, enlightened men like Schultz could no longer believe this. One of the first recommendations that he gave for the family was for them to seek psychiatric help for the boy. He was not equipped to deal with even the possibility of possession since it was no longer part of the theology of the Lutheran Church. He believed the best way to deal with the situation was through prayer. He began praying with Robbie and his parents in their home and then with Robbie alone. He took the boy to the church to pray with him and he begged whatever was bothering him to leave. It didn't help though and the strange manifestations continued. The weird noises were heard in the house and Robbie's bed went on shaking so hard that he was unable to get any sleep at night. Well, the minister still rejected the idea of demonic possession. To him, the idea of a person being possessed by an evil spirit was a Roman Catholic belief. He believed there was a very real explanation for what was taking place and while certainly paranormal, was not the work of any devil. Schultz had long been interested in parapsychology, the study of events that do not seem to be explicable by conventional science. He read everything he could get his hands on about the subject and believed that extrasensory perception, or ESP, existed in most people in varying degrees. Reverend Schultz was especially interested in psychokinesis, and from his first involvement with Robbie's family, he suspected that the boy might be unconsciously manipulating the items that were moving about in the house through paranormal means. Well, the minister kept this theory to himself, especially since Robbie's parents were still convinced their house was haunted, and they were convinced Robbie himself was haunted as well. Night after night, Robbie thrashed in his bed for hours, half asleep or in some sort of trance. When he finally went to sleep, he often screamed during horrific nightmares or mumbled incoherent phrases as if he was talking to someone his parents couldn't see. They pleaded with Reverend Schultz to try and help their son. Finally, on February 17th, Schultz decided to try and ascertain whether the house was haunted as the parents believed or whether Robbie was. He knew that if the haunting, or in this case, the paranormal phenomena, was connected to the boy, then it would follow him away from the house. With that in mind, he offered to let Robbie spend the night in his own home and his parents quickly agreed. They were anxious to try anything that might help by this time. If nothing else, Robbie might finally manage to get an entire night of sleep. That night, Mrs. Schultz went to the guest room and Robbie and the minister retired to the twin beds located in the master bedroom. 
About 10 minutes later, Schultz reported that he heard the sound of Robbie's bed creaking and shaking. He also heard strange scratching noises inside the walls, just like the ones that had been heard at Robbie's own house. Schultz quickly switched on the lights and clearly saw the vibrating bed. When he prayed for it to stop, the vibration grew even more violent. He stated that Robbie was wide awake, but he was completely still and was not moving in any way that would cause the bed to shake. Aside from the prayers he offered though, Schultz was determined not to react to the bed's movements. He decided to get himself and Robbie out of the room instead. He stood up and speaking calmly, announced the two of them should go to the kitchen and get some hot cocoa. After it was ready, they went into the minister's study. Robbie politely thanked Schultz for the cocoa, but said little else. He was quiet, and according to Schultz, seemed undisturbed by the activity. He assumed that perhaps Robbie had gotten used to the strange events, or as he suspected originally, that he might be faking them in some way. He watched the boy carefully as they finished their cocoa, and then they returned to the bedroom. Rather than get back into the bed, Schultz suggested that Robbie try and sleep in a heavy armchair that was located across the room. He decided to leave one of the lights on. While Schultz watched him closely, the chair began to move. First, it scooted backwards several inches and its legs jolted back and forth. The minister told Robbie to raise his own legs and to add his full weight to the chair, but that wasn't enough to keep the chair from moving. Moments later, it literally slammed against the wall and then it tipped over and dumped the boy unhurt onto the floor. Robbie had never moved in the chair and he had appeared to be in some sort of trance while it was all happening. The minister had been standing in front of the chair when all this occurred. When Robbie fell onto the floor, he stepped around the boy and sat down in the chair himself. Robbie slowly wandered away as the minister tried to tip the chair over himself, but he was unable to cause the heavy armchair to tip forward. Trying not to be frightened or discouraged, Reverend Schultz made a pallet of blankets on the floor for Robbie to sleep on. Robbie soon drifted off, and a few minutes later, the minister nodded off as well. He woke up around 3 a.m. and caught movement out of the corner of his eye. He realized that he was seeing Robbie's pallet sliding across the floor under its own power. Robbie seemed to be sound asleep. The pallet slid across the floor and vanished under the other bed. There seemed to be no way that Robbie could be making the blankets move, but Schultz refused to believe what he was seeing. He finally shouted at Robbie to stop. The sharp cry startled the boy awake and he raised up and struck his head on the iron springs under the bed. Stiff and still acting as though he was in a trance, Robbie never even flinched as his head and face slammed into the springs over and over again, the minister finally pulled him out from under the bed. After this active night, Schultz was now both puzzled and a little afraid. If Schultz still believed that Robbie was faking the activity, that belief was certainly shattered by what he'd seen. He questioned Robbie's parents about their visits to physicians and psychologists to rule out any kind of physical or mental problems that might be causing the phenomena to take place. The minister also contacted J.B. Ryan, the famed founder of the Parapsychology Laboratory at Duke University. He explained what was going on and Ryan and his partner and wife, Louisa Ryan, drove up from North Carolina to see the boy. Unfortunately, no activity took place while the investigator was present, but Ryan did deduce that it sounded like a classic poltergeist case in which the boy's unconscious abilities were influencing the objects around him. 
The details fit well with other experimental results that Ryan had been obtaining. And while the explanation suggested by Ryan appealed to the minister, largely thanks to his own interest in the field, he did an abrupt about-face a short time later when the phenomenon surrounding Robbie took another turn. As he had been since the beginning of the case, Robbie seemed perfectly normal during the daytime hours. At night, though, he was anything but calm. His sleep was still traumatized by horrible nightmares and the scratching sounds continued coming from inside of the walls. His mattress vibrated and rocked and he was constantly awakened by the noises and the movements. And then on February 26th, strange marks began to appear on Robbie's body. They appeared to be scratches, long and shallow furrows that looked like bloody marks that had been left behind by a cat's claws. They appeared on Robbie's arms, legs, and chest, and some of them, some of them, appeared to be letters of the alphabet. They were letters, but they didn't form any words. Well, not yet anyway. Perhaps startled by this new turn of events, Reverend Schultz realized that what he'd been doing was not enough to stop what was happening to Robbie. He suggested that Robbie's family contact someone else. You have to see a Catholic priest, he told them. The Catholics know about things like this. And after this, things got, if possible, even more confusing. The story gets so convoluted at this point because of the alternate versions of history that have been reported to occur between February 26th and the early days of March when Robbie and his family departed Maryland for St. Louis. The alternate versions of the story include a dramatic, widely accepted version and a more mundane, although still troubling version that is much more likely to be the truth. Let's take a look at the more exciting version first. According to some sources, Robbie's family turned to the Catholic Church on the recommendation of Reverend Schultz. His family called the rectory of St. James, a Catholic church near their home, and he asked to speak with a priest. Father E. Albert Hughes, a young priest who was the assistant pastor at the church at the time, was called to the telephone. He was skeptical and reluctant to get involved in the matter, but he did suggest that Robbie's father stop by the rectory the following morning. Father Hughes listened patiently to their story, but he offered little in the way of assistance. He promised to pray for Robbie, and he gave his father a bottle of holy water and some blessed candles. He told Robbie's father to sprinkle the holy water around the boy's room and to put the candles there and light them whenever anything unusual happened. Well, Robbie's father took the holy water and candles home with him and gave the items to his wife. Later that evening, she opened the bottle of holy water, sprinkling every room. She then placed the bottle on a dresser in Robbie's room and placed the candles next to them. She lit them and hoped for the best, but they did nothing to halt the activity. Robbie's mother reported that during the night, the bottle was picked up by an unseen force and smashed. She also stated that she lit one of the candles only to have the flame shoot all the way up to the ceiling. She snuffed it out, but was too afraid to light any of the other candles for fear they'd burn down the house. 
She quickly called the priest and Father Hughes told her to try again. She called back a few minutes later and the priest heard a loud crashing sound on the other end of the line. According to Robbie's mother, the telephone table in the house had just shattered into dozens of pieces. After this, Father Hughes decided to go to the house and talk to Robbie so that he could get an idea of what was going on. During the visit, Robbie allegedly addressed the priest in Latin, a language he didn't know. It was said that this incident was what started Hughes thinking that Robbie could be possessed. Shaken by Robbie's outburst, Hughes was said to have applied to his archbishop, the most reverend Patrick A. O'Boyle, for permission to conduct an exorcism. According to Hughes, he first went to O'Boyle's aide, the chancellor of the archdiocese, who advised Hughes to go slowly with the case. But Father Hughes was convinced by this time, and he insisted he was ready to move forward. The chancellor relented and made an appointment for Hughes to see O'Boyle. The Most Reverend Patrick O'Boyle was a protege of the most powerful Catholic official in America at the time, Francis Cardinal Spellman, the Archbishop of New York. O'Boyle was born to an Irish immigrant family in 1896, and after his father's death when he was only 10, his mother became a housekeeper at their church rectory. O'Boyle grew up wanting to emulate the men that his mother worked for, and he entered the seminary as soon as he was old enough. When he was ordained, he was assigned to the New York Archdiocese and was recognized by Spellman, who was then a bishop, as an energetic young priest. When Spellman became the archbishop in 1939, he took O'Boyle under his wing. He served Spellman during World War II, and in 1947, when the Archbishop of Baltimore and Washington died, the Vatican divided the jurisdiction, creating archdioceses for both cities. O'Boyle, then in New York as the executive director of Catholic Charities, was made the archbishop of the new archdiocese of Washington. It was the first time that a Monsignor, which was O'Boyle's station at the time, was appointed as an archbishop in America without having served as a bishop first. On January 14, 1948, Spellman consecrated O'Boyle in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, and a few days later, he moved to Washington to take over his new post. Archbishop O'Boyle would have certainly made a powerful and influential character in the drama of this story, but unfortunately, there's not a single record to say that he'd ever even heard of Robbie's situation or that he ever met Father Albert Hughes. Even if he had, it's unlikely that he would have assigned Robbie's exorcism to someone as inexperienced as Father Hughes. He fit none of the criteria for an exorcist and had little knowledge of the rights and duties that were required. He was a young man who had studied to be a priest, not an exorcist. He was an assistant pastor who had studied the tenets of Catholic theology. He should have been dealing with questions of faith and morals brought to him by ordinary people, not the nightmare of demonic possession. There was nothing in his past that would prepare Father Hughes for an exorcism, but in the winter of 1949, he allegedly found himself getting ready to perform one. Or at least that's one version of the story. While this was going on, Robbie was getting worse and worse. He was no longer going to school and his daytime hours were filled with fitful naps and long periods when he sat and simply stared out the window. The weird sounds came every night and the red scratches began to appear almost as soon as the sun went down. When he managed to sleep at night, he tossed and turned restlessly and was plagued by more horrific nightmares. Well, Father Hughes decided to carry out Robbie's exorcism at Georgetown Hospital, which was part of Georgetown University. According to the account, Hughes got Robbie admitted on his own and did so without the knowledge of an attending physician. Another version of the same account claims that Robbie was admitted by a psychiatrist who summoned Hughes when Robbie took a turn for the worst. 
And still another variation claims that the Catholic hospital was well aware that an exorcism was going to take place. Robbie was allegedly checked into the hospital sometime between February 27th and March 4th under an assumed name. The mother superior of the nuns issued strict orders that no records were to be kept of the exorcism. How convenient. Hughes ordered that Robbie be strapped to the bed since he had no assistant who could help control the boy if he became violent. Robbie lay on his back with his eyes closed and what happened next depends on, again, what version of the story that you care to believe. The stories include, number one, Father Hughes entered the room wearing a doctor's gown over his surplice and cassock and Robbie, in a powerful voice that was not his own, ordered Hughes to remove a cross in the room that could not be seen from his position on the bed. Number two, a nun entered the hospital room with a tray and it suddenly flew out of her hands and smashed against the wall. Number three, at one point as the exorcism was beginning, the hospital bed rolled all the way across the room on its own and slammed into the wall. The bed shook and jumped and the staff members present were unable to make it be still. Number four, after the exorcism began, Robbie thrashed and jerked on the bed and when confronted with holy water, began to swear in Aramaic. And the list goes on. These were just some of the stories told about the initial exorcism. I'll only bore you with one more of them, even though none of them actually occurred. The most popular part of the so-called botched exorcism occurred just as Father Hughes was beginning the prayers from the Catholic Manual for Exorcisms that was first written several hundred years before. As Father Hughes knelt beside Robbie's bed and focused his attention on the prayer book, Robbie managed to slip one of his hands out of the straps that held him into place and it disappeared under the bed. Somehow the boy worked a piece of the bed spring loose and he slashed the priest with it. Hughes screamed and struggled to his feet, his left arm hanging limp at his side. Blood gushed from a wound that ran from his shoulder to his wrist and it required more than 100 stitches to close it. This brought the exorcism to a dramatic end. Father Hughes never attempted to finish it. The story then goes on to say that he subsequently left St. James and suffered a nervous breakdown. Many years later, one of his former parishioners saw him preaching at a church located elsewhere in the archdiocese. During the mass, he could only hold the consecrated host aloft in one hand, his right hand. His left arm had been permanently damaged by the attack. Those who knew him say that he was haunted and withdrawn and was simply never the same again after the incident at Georgetown Hospital. That was the most popular and definitely the most exciting version of the story. There's one problem with it though. It never happened. Little that has been written about Father Hughes in this story is accurate. So here's the true thing. Here's what really happened. He became assistant pastor of the St. James Church under Reverend William Canning in June 1948, and he served without a break until June of 1960. He was later assigned to St. James in 1973 and stayed there until his death in 1980. Church records do not indicate that he ever suffered a breakdown or that he may ever made an attempt to exercise Robbie at Georgetown University Hospital. However, Robbie was checked into the hospital under his real name for several days during the period when the alleged exorcism attempt took place, but that's it. Records say that he underwent extensive medical and psychological evaluation between Monday, February 28th and Thursday, March 3rd. Father Hughes also never visited Robbie in his home. In truth, his mother brought him to St. James for only one consultation. 
There's nothing to suggest that Robbie ever spoke to the priest in Latin or Aramaic, and no evidence to say that Father Hughes was ever slashed with a bread spring. Those who knew Father Hughes personally remember him suffering no injuries during this period, and the fact is, the church social calendar, which still exists today, by the way, showed him as quite busy during the weeks after Robbie's release from the hospital. He spoke at seminars, held several masses, and even performed a number of weddings between March and June of 1949, the same time that he was allegedly in a mental hospital and or suffering from a serious injury. The local newspaper provided many reports of Father Hughes' activity from 1949 till his departure from St. James in 1960. The popular priest had performed 2,712 baptisms, 486 weddings, 251 baptisms with converts, and 247 funerals during his assignment. There was not a single notation of any exorcisms during his career, finished or unfinished. It was an exciting story, that was all. What really happened to Robbie during this same time period was unsettling enough without resorting to fiction. According to the priest's diary, a number of new scratches appeared on Robbie's body for four nights in a row. On the fourth night, the scratches began to take the shape of letters, and words. The words began to appear at the same time that Robbie's mother began to suggest that perhaps a trip away from Maryland might free the boy from the strange happenings. She thought that perhaps they could leave their troubles behind by visiting St. Louis. Robbie's mother was a native of the city and still had many relatives there. The more she considered this, the better the idea seemed. And apparently the haunting entity agreed because the word Louis inexplicably appeared on Robbie's ribcage. When this skin branding occurred, Robbie's hands were always visible, and his mother specifically notes he could not have scratched the words himself. He'd been under observation at the time, and the words, according to the witnesses, had simply appeared. The priest's diary even noted that the writing also appeared on Robbie's back. Well, the words terrified the family, and it was at this point that Robbie's mother took him to meet with Father Hughes at the St. James Church. During this one single documented visit, he suggested the family use blessed candles, holy water, and special prayers to perhaps rid the boy of his problems. Robbie's mother began the use of the blessed candles, and on occasion, a comb flew violently through the air and struck them snuffing out their flames. The other activity, like the scratching sounds and the odd noises, reportedly continued in the family home. According to the priest's diary, Robbie's mother took the bottle of holy water and sprinkled all the rooms. When she placed the bottle on a shelf, the bottle flew across the room, but it didn't break. When she held the lighted candle near Robbie at night, the whole bed began to shake and jerk back and forth. Even under the combined weight of mother and son, the bed would not stop moving. As mentioned, Robbie really was in the hospital between February 28th and March 3rd, 1949, so that he could be observed and examined by doctors. During that time, a strange incident took place that I learned of from a source who grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. His father had recounted an experience he had in 1949 at the old infirmary at Georgetown. There had been an outbreak of flu that year, and most of the 12 to 15-year-old boys in the neighborhood, including the witness, were moved to the infirmary for observation. His father said that one night around 9 p.m., two doctors and a boy who looked about 13 walked into the room that he and a number of other boys were housed in. Neither his father nor any of the others knew who this boy was. His father said that he looked directly at the boy who returned his stare with hatred in his eyes. He was terrified by the boy's glare and almost immediately some of the other boys 
began reciting the Lord's Prayer. It was as if fear had gripped them all. His father went on to say that he didn't sleep for many nights after that. He found out about a year later that the boy was the one who was possessed by the devil, his quote, and that the boy was held overnight in the infirmary before being moved to St. Louis. Was this story true? Or was it the work of an overactive imagination? Well, it's hard to say, especially given all the other fanciful additions to the true story. But we do know that Robbie was there at the time, and a few days later, he and his family boarded a train for St. Louis, where the story would become even stranger and much more frightening. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words history, hauntings, legends. So we're on right now. <laughs> I'll stop it. I'll stop. I'll stop. Just had to. Just had to, had to do it. Okay. Third time's a charm. Yeah. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 29, which is the 16th episode of season two, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Well, this is a grim, this is all, these are all grim episodes. Yeah. It's kind of hard to be funny, you know? No, oh no, I'm going to try. Well, I mean, we can try, but 
these are not these do not lend themselves to a lot of humor, unfortunately. No, but so, to be fair, um, you usually don't laugh at most of my jokes. Well, anyway. there is that. That is a good, very good point. But it never um, stops me. Well, no, I know it doesn't. So, I'm really excited for this because uh, this has been it's a huge topic, especially for St. Louis. It is a long-awaited topic. Yeah, with a lot of people. I don't know if they just want us to be done because they knew we were doing it last, right? Or if they really just want to hear about it. You know, either way, I'll take it. Either way, I'll take it. Okay, cool. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you have some new announcements uh, for some stuff for our, uh, I guess, Alton well, listeners? We've got stuff, well, we've got a lot of stuff coming up. Um, we are now into the Halloween season. It's now officially October, finally, uh, which I wondered if it would ever get here uh, after this summer. Although September went really fast. I was going to say, last, that? last episode you were talking about how like fast things yeah, seem to move. September went really fast. July and August, on the other hand, not so much, yeah. but September went really fast, and now we're officially into October, and um, which means that at this point, that if you are thinking about, because I know that a lot of our audience is in the Alton, St. Louis area, because that's where we kind of kicked things off. Mm-hmm. Um, if you guys are thinking about coming on any of the tours, I got to tell you, all the dinner tours are all gone. <laughs> I mean, they're they are all sold out now. So we don't have any of those left, but we do have plenty of our walking tours and bus tours still left. So if you're thinking about doing that, now is the time to strike because um, we've got tours in other cities like Decatur, where we are mostly full already. And it's not even, you know, just now October. Yeah. We haven't even had our first tours in Indicator yet. Um, so, you know, if you're thinking about doing it, make sure that you do get your tickets as soon as you can. Um, another thing in Alton, we should mention, I think we just hinted at it in our last episode, but then we didn't have a chance to make, I don't think we made the announcement that we were having a grand opening of the American Haunting. No. Um, it was still kind of in the works when we recorded our last episode. So by now you may have seen it on our Facebook page or somewhere else, but we have opened a little store in the Mineral Springs in in Alton, where you can actually get books in person. You don't have to mail order everything. You can get books in person. You can buy tour tickets in person as well. Um, You don't have to get them online. You come in, pay cash if you want. Um, And it is in the Mineral Springs. We're open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from noon to five. And um, it is, we just call it the vault because it is literally in the old vault, the old, the giant safe that used to be located in the Mineral Springs Hotel that that when they built it in 1914, they put in this huge safe and everybody used to put, you know, like the cigar stand and everything was out in the lobby would put all their stuff in there at night so they could lock it all up. And uh, it's just been storage over the years, but we kind of had this idea of doing something cool. And while you think, oh, it's a safe, it must be really small. It's really not. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's, I, it's, it's I not went, gigantic, but it's it's good size. Right, so. and I, I went to the opening. Um, it's pretty big. I took some some videos. And also, I haven't told you this. Um, I want to steal partial credit because when we were it, walking I back, I did say, well, why don't you just take the safe? I know. We were, we were looking at another spot, and um, we weren't sure what we were going to do with all the space of the spot that was there. Um, I didn't want to buy an entire living room set to fill up some of that space, yeah. which we kind of what we'd have to do. And then some, and, uh, we did, Cody and I walked past that safe and he said, well, you know, it'd be cool. You should just 
do this safe. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not going to work. And then I said to Dave, hey, what? And he goes, well, let's look at it. So, yeah, it worked out really well. So I, I thanks to everybody. We did have a lot of people who came in uh, a couple weeks ago for the grand opening. And a lot of you were podcast listeners. So we, we appreciate you coming by. Yeah, that was um, really cool. You probably saw it on our Facebook page or something. But now you're hearing about it on the podcast. So if you get a chance to come by the Mineral Springs, stop in some weekend and uh, and check it out. Yeah, and so. I think I, I even made a joke saying like, and then, you know, once you're done, all your stuff will be really safe and you quit the podcast. But I appreciate <laughs> yeah. you coming back yeah. and coming back around. Uh, well, coming up, um, well, we also have, I should mention too, speaking of the Mineral Springs, should mention we have our Dead of Winter event coming up again. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who attended last year, um, it is February 9th this year, um, around the same time as last year. It's always the weekend after the Super Bowl each mm -hmm. year. And uh, for those of you who came last year, you got to take part in the podcast. And that was a lot of fun. It was a lot it of fun. It really was. Um, to do it uh, in front of everybody, which is not something we normally do. Uh, although I will say we were still drinking, so it didn't matter. Yeah, uh, no. Nothing changes. Nope. Um, but we did have a really good time doing that. We're going to do it again this year. I, I'm, I'll just surprise everybody with the topic. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but it will be winter-related again. Um, we, we take it completely out of context of the rest of the of the podcast and just, we don't do it in any kind of order. We just kind of put it in something that we wanted to do. So, um, that'll be fun and, and everybody can take part in it. And speaking of special episodes, we also have our Halloween episode coming up. Yeah. So I'm sure some of you remember our last Halloween episode. Which I is don't. Our, I know that's the problem. Our personal ghost story episode got a little out of hand, but this year we're actually going to be doing an episode about our favorite ghost movies. Uh, we've got a pretty good list already, uh, but if there's something that you want to suggest, uh, drop us an email from the website, the AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. You could drop us an email from there if you've got a suggestion for us to add to the list yeah. uh, that we can talk about, um, but we've got a pretty good list, so I don't know how long that episode will be, uh, but we will uh, be putting that together here in the next couple of weeks. And uh, that will be airing on October 30th. So it actually is going to go like fall into the middle of our regular podcast. But it'll help break um, it up. Yeah, it'll break it up a little bit. And uh, it's something we like to do something special for Halloween. Yeah. And so. it gives me an excuse to watch some of these more classic movies that yeah. I haven't seen. Um, and I, I can just I can probably guarantee that it'll probably be pretty intoxicated again well yeah that's there is that but it's gonna be fun oh it's gonna be I'm great looking forward to it so it's, it's gonna be it's great gonna be a fun episode yeah so, so send me your suggestions yeah. and we'll check them out okay well we told lisa she could have 10 seconds for an ad so here it is i'm lisa hi 10 seconds patreon small donation you've got mail t-shirts spooky books free events bonus content secret facebook monthly swag patreon Okay, now let's uh, let's 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 start delving into this episode. Yes, uh, so I'd like to start out um, with a couple of your quotes from the book. Okay, um, because I think this kind of hones in again on why I wanted to do a podcast with you specifically, and I think it just kind of sets the tone for this crazy story. Okay, uh, so just bear with me a second. Sure. But one of the quotes is, "It's a pretty amazing story, no matter what you personally believe. The only issue is." 
that only parts of that article are true. Dates and places are confused, anecdotes are incomplete, and some are completely made up. It's too bad the mistakes were made because by the end of this series, within a series, you're going to see that the truth was much stranger and much more terrifying. And another quote you have is, when I first started working on this story, I knew what I believed about it or thought I did. All that I can tell you is that my mind has been changed several times over the years based on various interviews that I conducted with the remaining principles in this case. Regardless of what you believe, something happened. Yeah. And, I, and I like that because you change your opinion based on I facts. Have. And you've learned and studied this a lot. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I started, I started getting into this case in the early 90s. Um, I mean, I had heard of it. I knew that the, you know, I knew like in high school, I knew that the exorcist was based on a true story. Uh, unlike, you know, now we see that all the time, mm -hmm. you know, like you know, the conjuring based really, really fucking loosely on a the true bar story. For based um, yeah, on a true story is, is, so low. is really changed a lot since the seventies. But when that movie came out, it was, it was common knowledge that it was based on a true story. Now, obviously the, the film of the exorcist, which I would encourage everybody, if you have not seen it, watch it as you're getting into this, you know, this, this season or this series within a series at mm -hmm. the end of our season here, I would encourage people to watch the exorcist again. Um, if you've never seen it before, I'd encourage you to, I, what's wrong with you if you've never seen it before, but I, I went back um, actually and rewatched it for this. Leah walked out of the room within five minutes before anything <laughs> scary even happened. Yeah. And I just wanted to say that that film, um, it, lives it lives up to like it all does. the expectations it really and it's does. terrifying especially for yeah. the time it was created oh, it's man, still absolutely. crazy absolutely so yeah and it's you know it's um the the true story of course as we have already heard is was a boy not a girl mm -hmm. i mean there were things that uh william blatty changed to i don't know necessary he really didn't hide the identity of anyone because he didn't know it uh because you know it was a different time and um but he did change things and of course he combined some other things and you you read my book on the devil came to st louis and i'm actually going to which is kind of funny while we're doing this our bonus episodes that we do for patreon that that are you know only for our subscribers mm -hmm. i'm going to do episodes on the exorcisms the real exorcisms that inspired william blatty when he wrote the book okay. so you will see the more of the head spinning pea soup stuff yeah um, because that's not gonna there's going to be some weird stuff come into this story, but some of those older legends are where some of that dramatic stuff came from. Um, so I'm going to do those as, as a supplement to the to the regular podcast. Awesome. So. And, and you talk about how um, from the real story to the movie, you know, they changed some things. Yeah. Um, but you so you I mean, you do know the identity of this person. You yes. actually interviewed them, but yes. you chose specifically to not. Well, you have to that, remember, right? this was the this was the 90s. And uh, I had had a, a friend of a friend who put me in touch mm -hmm. And that was that was the condition that I came with to the table with is that I will not because at the time it didn't seem like there would be any way. I mean, then you got to remember the Internet wasn't even around yet. You couldn't so, tweet at him. Yeah, it wasn't. It, there didn't seem to be any way that anybody would learn it. And if they did learn it back in those days when things were a tiny bit more civilized, nobody was just going to blast this kid's name. Oh, it would be horrendous. It would be but, horrendous if they knew now. Yeah, well, they do know. People yeah. do oh, know. Well, and well, it's, right. You can find it on the internet. But, right. But I can I can tell you that I have never publicly said it to anyone. Yep. I have told it to people privately. I mean, Lisa, I told Lisa his name. I told mm -hmm. you his name. Um, and I, I've talked about it you know, but never publicly. Right. And we're going to, we're going to keep with yeah, that. And we're going to stay with and just, that. Just yeah, the, I'm if, not if going you know, to use If it. you know, great, but just leave the guy alone. Yeah. Like. I mean, I'm into my third edition of the book now 
and um, I've never used it. Yeah, I, I just don't. I just don't feel like it's right. I mean, that was something I said, and really, I mean, these were things that happened when he was a kid. And in, in my opinion, if they wanted his identity protected, then what's changed? There's yeah. no change. I mean, he was uh, a juvenile. He was underage, and his name shouldn't be used anymore. Mm-hmm. It wasn't hard to find. Right. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, if you know where to look. Yeah. And I, I, I did it using property records Mm -hmm. is how I did it and then went out to Maryland and found the the city directory records and it was pretty easy to do but um and now people wouldn't even know how to do that no they just look it up on the internet of course not so I mean you could go you can google it right now you could find his name right I just don't think that's necessary can you tell me a little bit about um what was it like talking to him and interviewing him and like uh very short yeah because he didn't really have anything to say was this over Um, the phone in person okay um he didn't have anything to say uh, his his statement was, I don't remember. I'm surprised he even took an interview. I, well, you know. it was, as I said, it was a friend of a friend. So who like put doing me in a touch. favor, doing somebody a he solid. He was doing somebody a favor, and this guy was somebody, and he vouched for me. So he's really trustworthy. He, if he says he won't do it, he won't do it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that was in, like, 97, I yeah. think. So, I mean, the Internet was in its infancy. Right. You know, it was around. But I, it didn't matter. I wasn't going to use it anyway. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was out there a couple of years ago back in Maryland and, um, you know, went to uh, like his, you know, his graves, grave sites, family members, grave sites. And, you know, I've got pictures and I have put up pictures of like Aunt Tilly's mm-hmm. grave because the name is different. So oh, she had a different okay. name. Yes. Okay. Mother's aunt. Right. So, and so, okay. So mother's side of the family, the aunt. So to dive in the story just off of that, in, in 1949, a boy starts noticing, like, scratching sounds inside the walls, objects moves, eventually, like, blankets are torn off them and all that. Typical, what I would consider, like, Poltergeist now, activity. Yes, poltergeist yeah. activity. And the mom thinks it might be related to the death of Aunt Tilly, yeah. but but the timing is a little bit well, the, off. Well, the timing that, right? was off. Um, you know, that was, and I, the reason why, and here here's the whole story behind that, is because uh, his Aunt Tilly... His aunt Matilda um, was a spiritualist, right? Um, and she had they'd uh, they'd been very close, and she had always encouraged him to, you know, believe in that sort of thing. They used to play with the Ouija board, but so everybody did, right? Because that's the thing you've got to remember is that Ouija boards were never considered scary until the Exorcist. I was going to say, can we? Yeah, can that's we, never can been you, a scary thing until can, the '70s. Can you? Yeah, can you walk me through the transition of Ouija boards from like parlor toy to taboo? Well. Ouija boards were always, I mean, yes, people who believed in spiritualism and in contact with the spirits would use them, but they were a novelty game and everybody had one. I mean, they, they, it was like, you know, in back in the days of board games, it was pre-monopoly, mm-hmm. but everybody had one. Everybody used to play with them all the time. It was just a thing. Was this you know, movie nobody, what made the difference? Like, Yeah, it was the Exorcist movie yeah. that made the difference. Now, in this story, in this particular story, and that was something that Blatty had picked up on when he'd heard about some of the real events, was that this boy had used a Ouija board and, you know, with the ant and stuff. And I think that, you know, he, it gave it some atmosphere. And uh, you got to remember that late 60s, early 70s, people were, the, the occult was seeing a real resurgence mm-hmm. of stuff. And I wrote about that quite a bit in American Hauntings that the book this was a time period i kind of walked through american history with how the occult and the paranormal influenced everything and this was something that had come into a real resurgence mostly thanks to the music of the day and you know there was just a big interest in witchcraft and all that kind of stuff and ouija boards 
uh, began to be seen as something kind of spooky, something scary that maybe you shouldn't mess with. And I mean, there had been stories before this, but nobody really took them seriously. But when the Exorcist movie came out and Captain Howdy was the, the spirit coming through the Ouija board. Right. Um, and they kind of implied, because that movie is full of a lot of implied things. Mm-hmm. You really don't have the solid stuff until really the end, I yeah. mean, late late in the movie. And um, it was implied that the, the, because of the Ouija board, that's why Reagan became possessed. And right. that's sort of when it went through this, it became this, you know, scary thing that people shouldn't mess with. And, you know... Um, that's one of the most people ask me about stuff like that all the time. And Ouija boards aren't evil. They're not, <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not anything that's going to possess you. And these stories about people saying they set them on fire and then they show up back in there. Yeah. You know, come on. Yeah. Right. I mean, let's, let's be honest, you know, right. Um, Ouija boards are, are no different than anything else. It's no different than using your flashlight, you know, thinking that ghosts are talking to you. I mean, it's it's all the same thing. Um, people people are what generate the energy, not not Ouija boards. Uh, but anyway, that that we're gonna get way off track. So people are the worst. Is that, what, is yeah. that what I'm hearing? Um, so, but yeah, I mean, so mom thought his mother thought that that maybe she had something to do with it. But when all this started. Um, Aunt Tilly wasn't even dead yet. Right. She it didn't was right die after until that, right? a, a couple of weeks after this activity started. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what else would you think? Oh, yeah. If she I mean, you know, for an that, if she was looking for something and it seemed like the house was haunted. And since she died around the same time and she was a spiritualist, it just seemed like it, a natural thing until this activity started sort of targeting Robbie. It right. wasn't just scratching sounds and moving things and knocking and stuff it suddenly became abusive toward him which then seemed to fit more into the you know the idea of a a poltergeist Mm -hmm. or a haunted house you know you know they brought in the exterminator thinking it was rats right that made things worse and you know this stuff went on and on and they didn't really know what to do about it and it was happening like every night and then when robbie's personality started to change you know, that was what really started to worry her, which, I mean, again, you could look at this and say that there are probably plenty of natural explanations for that. Kid's not getting any sleep. Yeah. You know, so of course his personality changes. Plus, I, I, I'm i going to say that based on, you know, not only on interviews, but on a lot of the secondhand stuff that I've read, you know, he was no prize. I mean, right. he was a, he a, was troublemaker. a troubled kid. I mean, he, and, you know, which, you know, maybe again fits into that whole poltergeist category which we'll we'll get it a little bit as we as you walk me through this i'll add on to that right because jb ryan believed that this was a poltergeist case and i mean this was a guy who knew who knew his stuff yeah but that was only based on what he knew and that's that's been the problem with this story all along everybody who thinks this was a hoax only knows about the stuff or only studied the stuff that happened in maryland they don't mm-hmm. know about any of the st louis stuff yeah because that's when things got really crazy is when he got to St. Louis. It right. wasn't the stuff in Maryland. You could you could give it an alternate explanation for most of that. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting too. You talk about the poltergeist activity because I was kind of wondering when does this, in your opinion, cross over from typical poltergeist activity to something more? And I also didn't really know too much until probably within the last year about poltergeist activity and and uh, how a lot of people think that it is 
projections from you know usually young women right, going through right. puberty or it's, something like that and young it's, women and young boys too. yeah we're, we're right both. just it's, yeah. it's but i'd never really i'd never thought of that never yeah. heard of that before and um the conjuring was a big story sure. that kind of turned me on to that um but I mean, when, in your opinion, did this kind of crossover from poltergeist activity to something more bizarre? Well, I mean, if if you if you believe that this was a possession, then mm-hmm. it, it did start almost at the beginning. Okay, um, this was never a poltergeist case because, see, ah. that is one of the signs of a possession: is you have you know personality changes, you have poltergeist activity, you have the, knowledge of things that you're not supposed to be able to right. know, um, and then speaking in foreign tongues. Um, all of these things are signs of an actual possession. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got some issues with this, as yeah. we'll get to yeah. in our next episode. Okay, all right. Uh, because I'm not completely sure, and I'll talk about that. I, I promise to talk about it in the next episode, but um, I'm not completely sure how they ever got permission to do this exorcism. Yeah. Because at no time did Robbie ever fit all the criteria. Yeah. Now, based on the interviews that I've done and things, uh, again something happened Mm -hmm. and my mind was changed about this case probably four or five times over the years uh where i've gone one direction and then i've gone another direction and um i'm as as this story goes on i'll i'll explain more i promise yeah but right now we're 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 so and that's why i wanted to kind of section this off the way that we did yeah because um you know i we're at the very beginning of all this Mm -hmm. and um I set the groundwork. Right. And there's a, there was a lot of things that were said about what happened in Maryland by people trying to dramatize. The, well, we're, I think we're going to get to that. Yeah. People tried to dramatize the story and make it sound like this full-blown possession from the very beginning. And it wasn't. And if you, again, if you believe in that kind of thing and you follow what happens in a possession, it also goes through several stages. It's, yeah. And this, this would fit the early stages of a real possession. Uh, again, if you believe in possession. Right. You're not just like one day normal, the next day your head's spinning around. Right, exactly. Skin's it's all great. Like it's a gradual, it's, and even terrible in, thing. Even in, uh, in the movie, it wasn't like that. Right. You know, so, and, and because the movie is based on the story, you can kind of see what happened. Yeah. Uh, everything that you see in the movie is kind of the progression that this took too. Although there was no green puke. Uh, right. We'll say there was none of that. No, no priests were thrown through windows. There was no like walking that, down so. the stairs yeah. backwards yeah, and all no, that. Nothing like that. Oh, well, so. that's lame. But yeah. I've, so I've been, <laughs> I do this thing pretty much when we have these episodes, like it's usually top of mind and it's what I want to talk to people about. And, you yeah. know, they're like, I'm in the elevator, like, Hey, how's your day? And I'm like, Oh, did you know about, you know, this murder or whatever? Um, and so I've been talking to people about this and they they don't like it first off. Um, and yeah. I love to bring up, I'm like, okay, well, Hey, do you believe in God? And they're like, well, yeah, usually they're like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, well then you probably should believe in the devil. Right. And I love to play that devil's advocate sort of yeah. thing and talk to people about this. And people get very uncomfortable talking about, um, exorcisms, demons, that sort of thing, yeah. the darker side yeah. of stuff. Um, but it's, it's very fascinating to me. And there's one instance, um, in the beginning that I want to talk to you about where, uh, people rushed into a room and said that they all saw the same thing. Uh, Robbie's sitting in a rocking chair that was spinning around. Yeah. And I think that that should be in a movie if it's not, because I know, that is right? it's very a cool, it's impressive a great feat. I know it's a, it's a great image. Um, you know, and, and I always like I like the story too. And, and now let me, let me say that this was a, secondhand story right. someone the, the thing about the school desk i thought was interesting yeah why he ended up stopping is... going to school yeah. um and that was interesting because 
like I said, I heard it from I heard it from someone who heard it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why I presented it that way. This was the story that of was course. told. But they said that he was sitting in his school desk and it kept moving around the room. You know, and they thought but, it was just and him. it wasn't him pushing it; it was actually moving. And um, he ended up, they, you know, they're like, "Okay, maybe you should stay home for a while." Yeah. You know, um, but again, everybody thought that it was him because he'd been in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know he wasn't well liked, and he he'd had his issues. Um, you know, and so it really wasn't surprising that he got in trouble. Yeah. For all this stuff. And, you know, there were a lot of exaggerated stories too. Of I course. Mean, about people hearing things outside the house. And I couldn't find any, any real relevant instances of neighbors claiming that they had heard screaming coming from the house or anything right. like that. Um, so it's, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of exaggeration in the story, which I tried to cut through that. Right. And I mean, and you called it out. Um, definitely. I'm, I'm curious about, you said his family called in two ministers and a rabbi. No, yeah. See, that's a story that I think is, is a BS I was gonna say, story. It sounds like I, the beginning of a, a joke. Of a joke. Yeah. I know I even said that. Um, and it does. It sounds like the beginning of a joke. If there had been, you know, like a, you know, so like an Oman, an Oman right. there from a, from a Muslim temple there too, it would have had everybody, but I don't think that ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was a perfect example of, people trying to exaggerate the story because people couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that, cause there's been other accounts obviously of this and they couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that it went from scratching in the walls to the things that happened in St. Louis, that it had to have been that exciting in Maryland too. And it just wasn't, yeah. you know, cause that was the case of two ministers and a, and a rabbi who come to the house and you know, he's one of them says he's speaking Hebrew and somebody yeah. else says he's speaking Aramaic and, there's no there there's never there was never in any of the documents about this case was that ever brought right. up and ever said that he was speaking in foreign languages. Okay, and that's one yeah. of the the check that marks was one that of the need. criteria, which right. is why. And we'll get to that probably in our next episode. Right, and I did so. I did have a quick story I wanted to talk about that. Um, I moved to New York City years ago. I had eleven roommates. The first, the <laughs> yeah, first I night I was it. there, yeah, it was crazy. The first <laughs> night I was there, though, um, one of the guy, I had three other people in my room, and this guy started talking in his sleep, and he was like freaking out, and I thought he was having a seizure. Not kidding. I was like, "What is going on? We need to help this man." <laughs> the next morning, I told him about it. And he goes, "Oh, I was speaking Hebrew." And I felt, I was like, I'm sorry if it's offensive, but I thought you were choking because, <laughs> like, because it was very throaty, right, you know, right, and the way right. he was talking about it. Yeah. Um, so this is just, it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, so the family eventually calls in uh, Lutheran minister Luther Schultz. Yeah. Who, who, if I had to pick one person out of this entire story that I would pick as the bad guy, yeah, it's him. Okay. I've got really little good to say about this guy, and I'll. I'll I'll tell you why. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. When this is all over, the family converted to Catholicism. Yeah. And he then felt that it was okay to violate the confidence on this and went to the newspapers. That's where that article came from. Oh. The beginning. Everything that I read at that Washington Post article, that all came from him. He then took it and did a presentation on it to uh, some parapsychology uh, meeting and Ooh. took it to JB Ryan and stuff. And he, in, in my opinion, really betrayed this family because yeah. suddenly, well, they weren't Lutherans anymore. So he figured it was okay. You right. know? It's like, what a jerk, you know? I mean, yeah. what a jerk move. Well, he, and he, so he was, was he also the one that 
said or you know introduced that the idea of a person being possessed by an evil spirit was more of a Roman Catholic yeah. belief. Yeah. So that's not a Lutheran it, thing. Yeah, they don't we, do exorcisms. Lutherans don't. Because I mean, well, do I, they now? Well, they didn't then. So well, maybe I was, that's changed. I but was raised at the time. He didn't want anything to do with well, it. So because I was raised Catholic, so I got like everything and then i i see these little branches of christianity and i'm like wait you guys don't have to do that or they're like no we don't we don't everything it's catholic light you yeah, know right. um so i'm always amazed when i see these um different sort of sects well he didn't like that. he didn't want anything to do with it and he kept pushing it all off and saying you know oh yeah only catholics believe that kind of stuff well apparently so. also so as you said as a lutheran minister he knew um that martin luther who had split off from the catholic church founded lutheran right. faith had considered all mental illnesses to be cases of diabolical possession yeah, because it was the 1500s that's a red fucking flag yeah but, but yes. it was the 1500s so they were trying his idea was that oh well you know this is the modern time and we don't believe in that kind of stuff but you know those catholics do because they're in the stone age you know right. that kind of thing okay i mean it was you know it was just really him pushing that off and some of that may have come up later out of his statements later on because mm-hmm. um I don't know that he said all of those things at the time, obviously, but uh, he did send them to, he did tell them they should contact a Catholic priest Mm -hmm. because I don't know that he believed it was a possession, but he certainly couldn't explain everything he'd seen because he had Robbie over to his house to spend the night. Right, and some of the bed stuff and the pallet and things started happening. So spooky stuff. Uh, But he was still convinced that it was all just a poltergeist case. That's why he contacted J.B. Ryan and asked him to come up from Duke. You know, he was running that parapsychology lab down there at the time, and he had him come up to study this because, you know, he thought, well, it's just got to be a poltergeist. This is the kind of stuff that Ryan studies. And he said, yeah, it does sound like what I do, but nothing happened while he was there. Right. So he didn't actually witness any of it. Right. It also always blows my mind that there was a parapsychology department at Duke University. He founded it. I mean, he was he was the the real deal. I mean, he really is the one who put all that stuff together. I mean, and he he is responsible for a lot of what we think of as far as ESP and poltergeist Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. This was all from the work he did originally. Yeah. And um, at at Duke University and. I'm not knocking him. Oh no no no, and I, it is and it is surprising. But you know, um, you know, they had him in other other colleges had him up until the early '80s. Most right. of that stuff eventually was taken off the you know, right. Well, I mean, because I'm all, I'm all for scientific oh, method yeah, yeah. applied it, to this. Yeah, stuff. it should be. Um, it just yeah, it surprised me. But okay, so they go to Catholic priests, and then can we dive in a little bit about Father Hughes? Yeah, I, that's a. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. Um, this was, and, and again, this is one of those things that I think that somebody felt the need to make this more exciting. And mm-hmm. I, I get into it in the book. I didn't get into it because it gets so confusing in the podcast. Um, this all came, these stories about Father Hughes and his exorcism at the hospital came from a guy who had been his assistant pastor later in life, who turned out to be like this showboat ass clown who mm. just went around telling wild stories because you listed and out like four or five different stories yeah there's that... there's some really there are like four different variations of the story yeah. none of which are true uh, but the stuff about the you know robbie with the bed spring which is very exciting yeah and it shows up in a lot of accounts but it's not true uh it didn't happen it just frankly did not happen he only met with father hughes one time and it and it was never in his home they actually went to the church Mm -hmm. met with him and that was it that was their only meeting with him he sent home some holy water and some candles for them 
And somehow he got drugged into the story when it started to gain some popularity later on. When it when it when re- things really started to come out in the late '80s about the true story, mm-hmm. um, this this assistant pastor that Father Hughes had had before he passed away um, would just love to tell stories, yeah. and it didn't matter that they weren't true um, because. Father Hughes, I mean, it was easy to check. I mean, it was this was all easy stuff. Yeah. I mean, all the records were right there, and they were right. happy to let you mention you look that. At yeah. You know, I, they were happy to let us see them. And, you know, the thing was is that he was busy that entire time. He was never, never had a mental breakdown. He was never in the hospital. He mm-hmm. was never injured. You know, he was busy the whole time because he had nothing to do with this case. And none of, and, and he wasn't connected to it in any way till after he died, which I find very convenient. Right. You know, um, there was no, you know, nothing that he ever said or did or had anything to do with it. He was a very minor blip in this case, but became a major component to it in the Maryland stories, mm-hmm. which, you know, like I said, they, they just, it didn't happen. It wasn't true. Right. Um, you know these things that the things that happen. Most of what we know about what happened comes from the priest diary mm-hmm. um, that Father Bishop kept. But Father Bishop used the accounts from the family to make the first part of the diary mm-hmm. because he wasn't there. I mean, he wasn't. He was in St. Louis, and he didn't come into the case until after the family had moved to St. Louis. Right. You know, to stay with relatives. So this early stuff from Maryland is what. Robbie's mother and father told him Mm -hmm. and um, so we we have some gaps but none of this stuff with Father Hughes or any of that stuff none of that was in there and it turned out that none of it was true either he's an unfortunate character in this yeah he became really a, a badly maligned character in this story yeah. even though I think he it, you know they they paint him as somebody who was trying to do the right thing but there's no way he could have gotten permission to do and I, and I talk about that there's mm-hmm. no way he could have gotten permission to do an exorcist right. exorcists are trained to be exorcists right. um, he was just a, a parish priest I mean you know he wasn't trained for anything like that he would not have been involved in, an, in a real exorcism mm-hmm. and so and and no one else would and he wouldn't have gotten permission and no one would have gone along with it there's yeah. just no way it wouldn't have happened and you mentioned the priest diary um did you say that was not published or uh... it, it wasn't published for many many years um there were copies of it floating around william blatty tried to get a copy of it in the early 70s and no one would give him one mm-hmm. um but when they tore down the the old section of Alexian Brothers in St. Louis, there was a copy there. There was also a copy on file at the hospital, and there were a handful of other copies floating around out there uh, that Father Bishop had, had I, mean, I guess, probably mimeographed. I mean, yeah. it was the 40s or whatever. But... Um, now you can you can read the whole thing for yourself. Okay, you know it's it's out there. The information is out there, uh, but you can't you can't you can't put together a whole book out of a you know sixteen page document, right? Uh, even in single spaced, yeah. it's still only sixteen pages. So a lot of lot of extra work had to be done to put together you know a, a, something that made sense that, yeah. that ran all the way, and um, you know I don't I just became i've just always been kind of obsessed with this story yeah and um i I don't know why i just have been and uh, so i and i've had the chance to to travel and go to the places and talk to people and luckily and and we'll talk more about that as the as the episodes go but i interviewed everyone who was still alive right by the time i started working on this um none of whom are now um there is no one who was actually there who's still with us Mm. except for robbie 
um, everyone else is gone. Do so. you do you think he leads like a normal life now? Yeah, actually, he um, literally is a rocket scientist or was he's retired now. <laughs> wow, he's in his eighties, but um, he's still alive, and he actually became a scientist. So that's super awesome. I mean, I've heard a lot of other things too, but I'm not going to get into. All yeah, this. no, no, I'm no. Not, I, yeah, that's not. There's a lot of personal stuff that isn't fodder for a podcast. For sure, no, and I think I I respect you for not you know speaking about that stuff i think that but i'm i'm happy he's he's good um that, that's awesome uh one of the last things i want to talk about so said as mentioned robbie really was in the hospital between february 28th and march 3rd of 1949 and during that time you, you heard a story um about a strange incident that took place can you talk yeah, about that yeah um this um they did they did send him to the hospital uh, mm-hmm. because they it, just like in the movie they wanted to make sure there wasn't a cause for all of these Which things that, that were that's happening. That's total. Like you're yeah. supposed to do that right. before the exorcism. Right. They, and all he, that. he spoke to, I mean, you know, psychiatrists and um, and doctors ran tests and everything was available in 1949. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there was a story, and it, it, that came to me um, unsolicited. Uh, gosh, 20 years ago, probably. Um, a guy comes to me and tells me this story that it happened. His father had passed on to him and that that they were, he was at the hospital, there was an influenza epidemic. And so a lot of the young men from the immediate area had been quarantined because Mm -hmm. it was spreading that way through young people, as it often does. And so they had quarantined a lot of them. And he said that while they were there, these two doctors came into the ward with a boy with them. And um, he got a really weird vibe from this kid you know and you know this is one of the stories i passed it on just it was just interesting it it was it was i I added it in just to make you think Mm -hmm. because these he said that when this boy turned and looked at the kids who were on the ward that there was just something about him and a bunch of the kids started praying that's how i feel every time i see a kid like i mean i know but (laughs) i mean i know i'm like like all at the same time right you know without any kind of you know anybody telling them to do it they yeah. just all did it and uh, i think that i think really set him on edge so something and, about his stare too, yeah and just... later you know the later he'd heard and again you know we get into he'd heard that that right. was it was robbie that but the timeline sort of match he, it, it does match yeah. i mean he was in the hospital at the time so i mean it, it could have been robbie but mm-hmm. i can't guarantee it was yeah but it, it certainly could have been right um, but a lesser podcast would have said this is what I happened. I know. And but, that's why we are but better. This is one of those. Yeah. But this is one of those stories that there are so many maybes and ifs. And yeah. if you believe that. And so I, I just tried. I mean, my, my goal with this, like I said in the beginning of it, was just to try to present everybody with enough stuff that they can decide for themselves. I, I'm, I won't I don't tell anybody what to think about this story. I've talked about it quite a bit. In fact, at our Dead of Winter event. Uh, as an after hours event uh, this year, we're doing dinner with the devil. It's our after hours Ooh, dinner, and I'm, I'm there. going to talk about some of the updates and the new material from this case. Um, you know, some of it may be in the podcast before then, but you know, um, I'll present it beginning to end. I I love to talk about this case, and I always have something new yeah. to add to it because I I've still I'm still that's why we're in the third edition of the book because I keep digging into it. Yeah, you know, so uh, it's a it's it's weird. Yeah, weird. yeah, so. I, I would say so. And then, so you 
kind of in it saying whether it's true or not soon after Robbie and his family boarded a train for St. Louis, St. Louis. and yeah. that's where we will pick up yep. on that part is two where we will pick up when they arrive in St. Louis and then leading up to the exorcism because yes. that's and there's a lot of a lot of misconceptions about what happened in St. Louis too a lot of people don't understand where the exorcism actually took place mm-hmm. um, and they'll tell you a lot of places where it didn't happen but I'll tell you the ones where it did so perfect yeah. I think I've decided also um, next year for my 30th birthday, um, I don't want presents. I just want an exorcism okay, just to kind of see how that goes. Actually, that was offered to me. Um, an exorcism? When I was filming, I was working on a documentary with a crew from uh, England a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And we were in, we'd met with this priest who was an exorcist and he was going to demonstrate on me. And I said, yeah, I'm going to pass on that. <laughs> uh, do you remember that, Lisa? I called Lisa and said, what, what should I do? Because they really wanted me to do this. And she says, well, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Right. So uh, I told, um, and, you know, and when, anytime you're working with a crew, always make friends with the guy on, on the crew, not the director and producer. Okay. Always make friends because the, the cameraman, the light, the sound guys, they're the ones who make you look good anyway. Right. Plus, they were a blast. Uh-huh. And I'm still in touch with uh, with one of them, my sound guy, Rob. Yeah. Uh, I, I still stay in touch with, but he Rob's like, don't do it if you don't want to do it don't do it and then when and he went to the director and said yeah troy doesn't want to do this so that's a no and so don't push him into doing this and uh, i just i no thanks i just yeah i don't know just i just wasn't i don't know wasn't comfortable with it it just didn't so it's something i wanted to do well i'm looking so. forward to it um <laughs> but no that's uh yeah this this story it it takes a lot of twists and turns. Oh, man, and I know it's it's very confusing and it's very complex. And you know, it, it's it's traveling. It travels back and forth from St. Louis to Maryland and back to St. Louis again, and moves all over the city. And I mean, there's just a lot. And I mean, I can't get into every single part of this, but having a discussion about it, I'm I'm able to do more from the monologue than I can. You know, just just reading the story to you doesn't do it justice. But getting able to talk about it like this, I think we can take it a little further than we normally could. Absolutely. And if you want to read the whole story, you should yeah. check out the book, The yeah. Devil Came to St. Louis. I've been reading it. It's been keeping me up at night. It's, hor- <laughs> it's horrifying. You know, um, I will tell you that that is the, and I, maybe I should save this for the end, uh, but I'll mention it now. This is That is the only book that I have ever written out of the 125 books I've written. The Devil Came to St. Louis is the only book that, weird stuff started to happen in my house when I was working on it. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't say that now yeah, with her. I, I did. <sighs> I, I mean, I did. It, it, was, it was the only time and it, it only lasted during the time I was working. What, on the wait, block. what happened? Things would move around. Things disappeared. Like, I mean, I, there like would be at the hotel? stuff sitting. Yeah. Right. Stuff sitting on my desk um, that I knew was there and would be gone. I'd go to look for it and it would be gone. And then I'd find it the next day in the spot where I looked for it. Mm. Um, it was a lot of weird stuff happened when I was working on this book. The devil doesn't which want still, people to know the which truth. still didn't convince me that it was real. Yeah. That came a couple <laughs> of editions later. I don't know. And I, you know, and then I'm hitting miss on a lot of, th- well, we'll, we'll talk about it. Right. Like I said, my mind has changed about a half dozen times. Yeah. And, um, I will tell you though that no, I can't. I we gotta save. All right, no, we we'll gotta wait. save it. We I'm excited it. to see where your mind lands yeah. by the time we get done yeah. with well, all of this. Yeah, the le- very last interview that I did um, really convinced me that I, I always say something happened. Right. Uh, but the very last interview that I was able to do um, leaned me more toward 
one direction. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we'll talk Good. about it. We'll get there. Good to know. We'll get there. So hopefully everybody will hang in there. I don't know how many episodes of this will be. I'm not even going to ask. Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I just, I re- literally don't know at this point. So I don't know how many it's going to be, but right. it's going to be some episodes. I know so. how many pages are in the book. I know <laughs> roughly where this part is in the book, but I'm not going to make any assumptions right. because yeah, there's just, just too much. Why bother? And things get really complicated after this, even more so. Oh than yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Awesome. Um, well, Hey, I wanted to give um, a quick shout out to um, a listener that reached out to us um, named Kathy, who has her own podcast called haunting history podcast. She reached out to me last night. Um, well, I think they follow me on Instagram. I pro- think I probably just saw, liked something on my yeah, Instagram. I thought I re- recognized that name. Just, you know, sent us an email at yeah. American hauntings podcast at gmail.com and just said, Hey, love your podcast. You know, like just started my own thing. And so I started, uh, we were drunk yelling back and forth, or at least I was drunk. I don't know if she <laughs> yeah, was, I don't know if she was um, but these uh, are like the 12 page texts that you send me at 1030 at night. Yes. I know you're drinking. Oh so. yeah. A hundred percent. I got an idea and I can like do it in your voice. I got an idea. And <laughs> Uh, you know, really I'm, wasted, but I'm yeah. an idea, man. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, it was, it's kind of nice when people uh, reach out to us. I mean, for any reason, people reach out yeah, to us, oh, but yeah. especially when they ask us like, Hey, I have a podcast and like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, funny story. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't either. We really don't either. Um, but it, it really helps me kind of realize how far we've come and sure. that, you know, as far as from the tech perspective and then also just like our uh, flow, you know, and yeah. repertoire and all that stuff. I, I think it's really, um, we've come a long way. So, you know, if you have your own podcast, let us know, you know, reach out. And we, I really appreciate anybody that says they listen for whatever reason. Yeah, um, too. and you know, the reviews that we get, um, and we're, we're getting up there and listens and I probably share too much, but I show a lot of like our actual stats for the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, because I just want to kind of show people like the real deal of what, what's going it. on. Yeah, yeah. And that we appreciate it. Yeah. And I'm not going to try to hide the numbers or anything. Um, and it's great. We get I'm just uh, shocked that it's more than like six people. Yeah. Honestly. It should be so. like, uh, you know, the girl, <laughs> friends and a couple like random people are thought they're listening to something else i don't know yeah um, accidentally listen to your podcast yeah but um yeah we really appreciate all the feedback and support and um i'm trying to stay off social media more so you know reach out to me via email and let's let's talk let's be friends sounds good The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to some of Troy's books, as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. Find Troy on Instagram at TroyTaylorGram, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author page, or at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor and was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck.